Hey there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyperlocal progressive podcast focusing exclusively on beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And today in beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, we are not in our studio. We are over at Andrew Gennardis's office. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for speaking with us today. Hello, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here. Today, we are going to get a little bit of an overview on your accomplishments over the last three years. Has it been three years since we spoke to you on the podcast before? Probably just a little bit more than that, yeah. Wow, yeah, because we last had you on right before that momentous election. Yeah. (laughs) What have you been up to? What's about time, (laughs) someone asked. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you've just been sitting in this room. (laughs) Because we got a lot to catch up on. Give us the 10,000-foot view what's been going on in the office of senator gonardas well gosh what hasn't been going on um it has certainly been an eventful three years since i was sworn in in january of 2019 i think by most objective measures the work output of the state legislature over the last three years has just been extraordinary i mean by some measures the most productive and prolific legislative sessions in new york's history We could probably spend days just going over the totality of accomplishments and things that we've done as a legislative body and things that have actually passed into law or things that we've been able to secure. When you think about three years ago, we never had early voting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Think about three years ago, we were still fighting for full funding of our public schools, which we finally achieved in last year's budget. Three years ago, the status of the speed camera program was Mm -hmm. up in the air. We didn't have congestion pricing. We didn't have an MTA capital plan that would have brought three new elevators here in the next five years. And I say Mm -hmm. here in this neighborhood, we didn't have things like gender. Conversion therapy was still allowed in New York State. I can go on and on and on. So many things that have happened across the board. I mean, The CLCPA, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, the most far-reaching and ambitious climate change legislation of any jurisdiction in this country, passed the state legislature two years ago. So a lot's been going on. And I've just been so thrilled to have been a part and to continue to be a part of that work because I think when I came into office, we promised a lot of change. We promised to change the direction of the state and to really shift things in a different direction. And there's no doubt that we have done that. And then for my part, I've been able to really contribute, I think, to that level of productivity. You know, in my three years, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that 50 of my bills have been signed into law. Actually, I think it's 49. I was going to say, every time we talk, the number goes up. It's amazing. Actually, I think technically right now we're at 49, but we're waiting for one more. (laughs) Maybe it'll it'll happen while we're recording this. We'll see. Yes. Um, Check. We'll be like, oh, we're at 60. You know, like think about three years to have 50 measures signed into law. That is now the Mm -hmm. law of the land. And it's because of really the work that went behind that in my staff's work and the advocacy community. I'm incredibly proud of that. And I think that- um, 50 is a great number and it's an ambitious number. And from my perspective, like just getting started. (laughs) This isn't like, oh, I co-sponsored X or Y. One of the unique things that we have in you as our state senator is that you actually write the laws. You do the job that you signed up for. I mean, look, it's one of those things where the spectrum of issues that come before the legislature is so great and so massive that you kind of have to divvy up the work. And so while it's important to be the prime sponsor of a lot of these bills, it's not the end all be all. Like Mm -hmm. I care about the environment just as many of my colleagues do, but my colleague who's the chairman of the environmental committee, he's going to take the lead on writing the climate change legislation, right? I'm happy to support that. I care about it just as much as he did. But I trust that he's able to manage that process while I focus on issues that come in with my bailiwick, my area of expertise. So there is some credit sharing to go around, but you're right to your point, Dan, like 
Yeah, 50 of these bills have come out of my office. My staff has worked on them. We've drafted the bills. We've worked with advocates to work on these bills. We've shepherded them through the legislative process. Yeah. And I'm incredibly proud of that. Listeners can't see, but if you look on the wall here in my <laughs> office, I have one of the official oh. uh, signed certificates. That actually right there is the certificate when the governor signed the speed camera legislation into oh. law wow. on Mother's Day 2019. So that is a copy so of the actual document that he signed with the pen and everything. So, you know, I have that framed here. I have a whole bunch more framed in my Albany office, but I'm incredibly <laughs> proud of that one in particular because that was, as we all remember, one of my signature issues still is yeah. street safety and the speed camera program. So having a collection of 50 of those on my wall is a pretty nice thing. And Mother's Day of 2019, you were only in the legislature yeah. for a couple three of months at that Yeah, three point. or four months. Yeah, yeah. It's been three years, so people might forget. For so long, Albany was constantly jammed up, and you went in to a radically different Albany. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly my hope that I'd go to a place that would be productive. Like, <laughs> I don't want to have this position just to spin my wheels. And the fact that we now have a legislature that is as productive and prolific as it is, is certainly exciting for me because it gives you a lot of opportunities to actually write public policy that makes a difference in people's lives. I think when people hear you say, oh, I passed 50 bills, it's easy to think, oh, that must be easy. But it's <laughs> much more involved than that. And what's really interesting to me is that the process between D.C. and Albany is actually quite different. So I guess the first question is, where does a bill begin? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the schoolhouse rocks. Yeah. So, you know, it's actually not that far off from reality. Bills come from anywhere. You know, my staff doesn't like when I do this, but like I'll read the newspaper and I'll say, wait, that doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> I'll like circle it. You know, it's like I've seen out of the West Wing when Toby's like circles in the newspaper. We can make college cheaper. Um, you know, there's an element of like that where I'll see things, I'll see issues and I'll send it to my staff saying, hey, I want to see if there's something here. Mm. There's also times where advocacy groups or outside stakeholders will come up with an idea for a bill and then they'll come to me and say, look, we've identified this problem and we've identified a legislative solution. We would like you to work with us and help us change the law to make this happen. And so in that case, we'll work with them to take their idea and put it into legislative language and then try to shepherd it through. And what's nice about that approach is that there's already a built-in constituency that can help create momentum and buzz. Other times, bills will come to me by virtue of the committee that I chair, which is the Civil Service and Pensions Committee. Oftentimes, different public sector unions or state comptroller's office or the governor's office will say, hey, look, we have an idea that requires changing the retirement and security law or, the, or civil service law. And we, you know, you're the chairman of the committee. We want to talk to you first. Would you consider introducing this bill? Would you consider doing this? And then lastly, and this gets to your point, Dan, about Schoolhouse Rock, we get ideas from constituents. You know, one of the bills that I'm really hot on right now is this bill that I've proposed about a vehicle safety rating system for big yep. heavy vehicles, which is now actually kind of elevating to a national conversation. That bill idea came from someone commenting on a Facebook post, a constituent. And I thought about it, I was like, you know what? That actually is a really good point. That's a good idea. Let's look into this. And so we took that nugget of an idea and we worked on it, we tweaked it, we expanded it. And now we have this bill that we're trying to pass. We got a letter from a constituent last year saying, you know what? I keep getting these things in the mail that are spam mail, but they, they say all over it, official government notice, second warning. Yeah. It's like fraud. Is there something we could do to stop this? And we looked into it. And in fact, it's not currently illegal in New York to feign official government correspondence. Yeah. Wow. And so like, we took that problem that a constituent <laughs> reached out to us from literally in a handwritten letter. We drafted a bill to address that problem that we introduced last May. Bill ideas come from a variety of sources. 
I think it's important just to like always listen to people, especially if they're constituents with an idea or a problem, or even just outside folks who might have expertise in a certain area, and then find ways that we can continue to improve public policy with them hand in hand. So once you have an idea, what is the tweaking process? Who do you have to meet? What meetings do you have to sit through? Do, do you just come into your office whip out a pad of paper and write down? I don't do it myself. <laughs> Sometimes I'll do like if I'm like a dog with a bone on like a, a specific thing, like I'll go down a rabbit hole of statutory text just to like find what I want to do, mm-hmm. which I have done sometimes. But oftentimes <laughs> what will happen is once we kind of have the idea for a potential bill, I'll then discuss it with my staff. I have pretty good sized staff. Two people who focus almost exclusively on legislation, my policy director, my legislative aide, my chief of staff, and then my senior advisor. We all kind of like work on these things jointly. Once we identify the problem, we'll then see if anyone else has drafted a bill on it. Oftentimes not, but every now and then maybe someone else has already got there first and that's okay. And then if not, we will take what is called an LBD. Mm-hmm. What it stands for, I can't tell you. Something legislative. <laughs> not, not little black dress. <laughs> no. Um, something legislative, something draft, LBD. And that basically is a designation from the central legislative drafting office in the legislature that we kind of have claimed this issue and this topic. And once we have the LBD, we can then work on mm. drafting language. Now, in my office, we usually try to take the first crack at drafting legislative language. It doesn't have to be that way. We can also submit our idea literally on a sheet of paper to the central drafting office. It's a team of lawyers who are experts at writing bills and ask them to draft the language for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. But you, know, you got to wait because everyone else has got their bills in and it's yep. just a longer process. So we try to do it ourselves if we can, or at least take the first crack at it. And then we'll keep polishing the language. If we're working with different stakeholders, we'll make sure that they're okay with the language, have mm-hmm. their experts look at it and constantly tweak until we have a bill draft that we feel very happy with. And then we'll introduce it. Literally, we will just file the bill so that it becomes an introduced bill. You mentioned Washington before. Literally in Washington, if you want to introduce a bill, there's like an inbox on the floor of the House or the Senate where you just literally go like drop a bill in. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's how like officially how it happens. I mean, obviously, it's a bit more um, sophisticated than that these days. But the original thing is you literally just put your bill in like the bill drop box. (laughs) So we have a similar version. We submit it. And then once the legislative day begins, it'll kind of just be put into the system, if you will. And then the bill is live that we then try to shepherd through the process. Do you have any stories about like something that really changed dramatically when you started digging into- We're working on a bill right now. It's a bill about helping freelancers get paid. And we're working with a bunch of advocates on this bill. And it turns out that someone else has already kind of taken a very similar approach to the solutions that we've solved that already introduced a similar bill, but not the same bill. And so we've been drafting this and drafting this, and all of a sudden it pops up that someone else is already there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really change much. Now we know to work with someone who's already working in this space to try to collaborate. But certainly none of my bills have had like radical Mm -hmm. transformations at this stage in the process. Sometimes we'll get feedback from stakeholders that whatever we thought we may have agreed on isn't actually when they see the language what they want Mm -hmm. or what they Mm -hmm. think is what we want. So there might be some back and forth there. But by and large, it's a very collaborative process. I actually have a question about that with bills showing up on the website. I noticed comparing to DC, they have these very specific titles for each bill. And everything I see on the New York Senate website seems to be like relating to such and such a thing, but not really like a title. What, hmm. What's what's the deal with that? If, if that's, you know, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. I've named some of my bills. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, like the Sleep Act was a name that we actually put into the actual bill text. 
But I think that's probably just the way historically the legislature has owned internal processes. I couldn't tell you exactly when or how or why that started, but it doesn't really have a big effect on the actual substance of the bills. It's more just about a formality. So I just, I don't pay much okay. attention to it. A, but yeah, I'm glad that other people are. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad <laughs> that we have, you know. When you go and you try to find yeah. stuff and it's like, wait. Now we have an introduced bill. So the process for shepherding that through, what does that process look like? Oftentimes when we're drafting a bill, we will try to identify an assembly lead as well so that we're both introducing the same bill at the same time, hopefully in advance. Not always. Sometimes we'll introduce the bill first and then someone might you know, say, oh, that's a good bill. I saw you just put in. Can I carry that in the assembly? And usually the answer is sure, of course, unless there's like a strategic reason why we want someone in particular. Once a bill gets introduced, it gets referred to the committee who has the primary jurisdiction for that issue area. Technically speaking, that assignment happens when the legislature meets for the day, and it's like one of the pro forma motions that happens. Like we kind of do it by shorthand now. All the bills introduced, they'll already be kind of preordained to their committee assignments, mm-hmm. and then we just have to you know introduce a motion to kind of have that now officially assigned to that committee. So once it's in a committee, then it's a matter about getting the committee chairman's support for that bill. And there's different levels of engagement and coalition building that I think are necessary. Some bills. You really have to work very hard because they're big bills. Maybe they're controversial. Maybe there's a lot of voices that need to be heard on these things. You have to build a big coalition of support to help build momentum for it, even at the committee level. That's where it usually helps to have like outside stakeholders, advocacy groups, and experts kind of help build that coalition for you. You know, you want to get co-sponsors on your bills. Okay, I'm working on a bill that involves the environment. Can I get the committee chairman of the Environmental Protection Committee to be supportive or not opposed? You want to think strategically about building co-sponsors and building up support. Other bills aren't as controversial or as big, so you don't need the same type of internal engagement on them to kind of yeah. move them through. But you do try to like work the levers on both the House and the Senate side to build up internal support. Once a bill is in committee, you then do what is known as a request out, where we request the bill to be reported out of the committee. And that means that we are putting a request that that bill makes it onto the next committee agenda or a committee agenda. And by doing that, it's a flag that this is a priority for you. And it also is an opportunity for the committee staff to then look at the bill. What's this bill about? What does it do? Is it a controversial bill? Is it not a controversial bill? Do we think we can pass it? Does it need to be amended? Are there any issues that are flagged by other stakeholders or other people on the other side of the table? And that's really the opportunity for the committee staff to kind of take their first good deep dive Mm. at the bill. If the bill survives that level of scrutiny, it'll often make it onto a committee agenda. And then at the next committee, it'll be considered and it'll be hopefully passed. It'll come up for a vote. Sometimes intervening between the passage of a bill and introduction and its passage, there'll be committee hearings, there'll be legislative hearings, there'll be roundtables, there'll be educational forums. It really depends on the type of bill that you're talking about. But Broadly speaking, once you introduce the bill, you try to get it onto a committee agenda so that it can then start moving through. If a bill that's introduced in a committee has issues, maybe some stakeholders have raised red flags or yellow flags, sometimes it's a political dispute. You have to work through the politics of that. But really, the key is to get it through that committee. Mm-hmm. A bill will not go anywhere until it gets through that committee first. So how do you make those first contacts? Is it a cold call to like the committee member? Is it like, oh, you see them at a restaurant and you're like, hey, I have a bill. Do people know each other like through just office scuttlebutt or? I think it's all of the above. 
Um, you know, because once you introduce the bill, then it's public record. Right? It's in the yeah. public domain. Once it gets assigned to the committee, that's also in the public domain. Your efficacy in this line of work, I think, really is built on the strength of your relationships. And so having good relationships allows you then to have those types of conversations. Oftentimes on bills that are priorities for me, once we introduce a bill, we will then send a memo or a letter to all of my colleagues with a copy of the bill, with any supporting documentation, memos, articles, et cetera, saying, I've just introduced this bill. Would you consider co-sponsoring it? And oftentimes, we'll get some co-sponsors on that bill. Other times, I will pick up the phone. I'll call the chairman of a committee saying, hey, I just dropped this bill. It's going to come to your committee. I'd love to talk to you about it. Sometimes I'll do that before I introduce the bill to give them a heads up if I think it'll be contentious in any way. Sometimes those conversations can happen in the hallway. They can happen in the chamber <laughs> or up in Albany. I was with some of my colleagues last week. We had a, um, a retreat with the Senate Democrats. And there's a bill that I introduced last year that you know I mentioned to two of my colleagues. I said, hey, I think you'd actually be really interested in this bill. Can we take a look at it and let's talk more? And like, just because I have a close relationship with both of those individuals, yeah, no problem. Text it to me. Great. <laughs> you talk to people wherever you can find them. There's lots of jokes to be had about politicians who always talk, but I think it's really important that you are very communicative. If you want your bills to become law, you have to keep it in the public conversation. And the way to keep it in the public conversation mm -hmm. is to talk about it. Yeah. And just talking about other legislators, one of the things that I thought was so interesting was in your first term, we had a majority in the Senate. This term is a supermajority. When you're working on bipartisan issues, how has that changed the dynamic? It's always good when you can find opportunities to have things be bipartisan or just nonpartisan, but it's not the same type of bipartisan considerations that you see in Washington, where you kind of are forced to go across the aisle as much. For better or for worse, historically, the power dynamics of the state legislature in each individual chamber have been partisan-driven. So when Republicans controlled the state Senate, they did not really collaborate much with the Democrats. Now that the Democrats are in the majority, we've done, I think, a little bit of a better job, but we don't have to like negotiate yeah. with them. In fact, even the allocation of resources for each individual member is really determined on a partisan basis. Now, I've heard some stories from some of my colleagues who previously served in the minority as Democrats, and they would tell me things like when the Republicans controlled the Senate, they would get the secondhand computers. You couldn't get a whole box of pushpins. You would get a Dixie cup of pushpins. You were oh, limited. Wow. wow. One of my colleagues said that there Petty. were two different types of notepads. There were like the high quality notepads. Then there was like the three times recycled paper that was like thinner than tissue paper notepad that went to the Democratic members. Wow. You didn't get access to photocopiers. You didn't get access to printers. Oh, so there's a huge amount of control. Oh, a huge amount of control. Huge amount wow. of control. And when we took the majority in 2019, we kept some of that control, but I think we did a better job of, you know, not being jerks about it. Right. <laughs> um, but to kind of answer your question, there are lots of bills that pass 63 to 0, 62 to 1. Yeah. But a lot of like the big ticket bills tend to be split amongst uh, down a partisan breakdown. Because I've seen like committee meeting recordings where like you'll have someone sit at like the You're committee the one guy who watches that video. <laughs> You're that. I was wondering who that one YouTube view was. Yeah. I see. Because like it happened. And it's amazing how fast they can speak. They are like rattling off bills. These aren't discussion things. Person names the bill. The vote happens in like 30 seconds. Because wow. again, most of that collaboration is happening off screen earlier. Exactly. So the committee meetings themselves are more of a pro forma, not always. I mean, sometimes people ask questions and there'll be discussions and some committee meetings have lasted you know, a long time. But by and large, when mm. bills get to this point, you already know where the votes are. You already know who's voting for it. It's already kind of cleared the initial hurdles. 
And so it is more of a pro forma process than it is an actual instance of engagement. So oftentimes, a lot of bills, once it passes one committee, it could then go either to a floor calendar or it can be referred to another committee for another yep. committee to review it. Oftentimes, bills that have a financial impact, costs or whatever, will get routed from the primary committee then to the finance committee. And so then you have to go through that hurdle. Same process applies there. Mm. Uh, and then once a bill clears its committee hurdles and it gets reported to the floor, it then has to age on the floor for at least three days before a vote can be taken on it. That requirement sits from the days where you'd literally have to have a copy of the bill sitting on your desk for three days for public review to give legislators a chance to read it before you pass anything. So it has to age for at least three days, and then it's eligible for a vote. Sometimes we will pass a bill through committee, put it on a floor calendar, but not take it up right away because it still needs some work. It still needs to be amended. Maybe there's an agreement to move the bill out of committee, but we know that we're going to revisit the bill language and make a tweak or try to amend it some other way. So it's not like once it clears committee, it is now on a fast track to full passage. It mm-hmm. just clears another hurdle along the way. Once it does reach there, what does one of those sessions look like from the actual human perspective of someone who has to sit through them and work it? Oh, boy. So um, (laughs) you guys should actually come up to Albany one day when we're in session to see how crazy it is. And we'd love to have you. We'll host you in the office. We'd love to. Yeah. When we are in session, and we are in session usually from January through June, and every week, anywhere from two to five days, a session day in Albany is like... It's the best way to describe it. <laughs> uh, imagine tying yourself to a fire hose <laughs> and putting your mouth over the hole and then having someone just like kick a wrench around to loosen the, the screw cap and you're just lashing on oh and you're God. trying to like, you know, stay, stay upright while just this onslaught of water coming your way. It can be really intense because you only have limited days that we're in session. So you'll start your day meeting with constituents, meeting with groups, meeting with folks that want a bit of your time. Those meetings can be like literally 10 minutes at a time. We'll have 20 meetings in a day because we have 20 different groups. Yep. You know, we'll have a school group coming up and then we'll have the Bay Ridge Medical Society will come up and then we'll have the Brooklyn Bar Association and then we'll have this group, that group. And you want to give everyone a little bit of your time. So you'll have your staff meet with them. You'll meet with them. You'll pop into this meeting, pop into that meeting. I sit on seven committees. I'll have anywhere from three to five committee meetings in a day, sometimes my own committee that I'm chairing, sometimes other committees. And you're basically running around the Capitol to all these different committee meetings, popping back to your office, saying hi to the school group, popping back across to the Capitol to do the Judiciary Committee meeting. Maybe at the Judiciary Committee, you're interviewing candidates for the Court of Appeal. So you want to be prepared and thoughtful and you want to ask good questions. Then you got to run from that vote back to your office because this is happening, that's happening. That's kind of like the entire morning till about one o'clock. One o'clock, then we have an internal daily conference. The Senate Democratic Conference will meet, the Republican Conference will meet. And that's where we kind of do our own internal conversations. What's going on for the day? What's going on for the week? What do we expect happening on the floor? Are we anticipating any objections on bills? Are we anticipating any parliamentary procedures or tricks or whatever? Those conversations can also go anywhere from like one to three hours. Maybe that's a time for the entire conference to discuss an issue that's coming down the pike in a couple of weeks. And we want to see if we have any consensus on it. Maybe it's a conversation about update on the budget negotiations or update on where things stand with the negotiations on the climate bill or the this bill or the that bill. 
like I said, anywhere from one to three hours. Then we go onto the floor where then we actually have the formal legislative session where we all sit in the chamber. We run through the day's agenda. Every bill gets called up for a vote. You have to vote on each bill. If you want to speak on a bill, you have to rise, you speak on a bill, and that can go for a couple hours as well. And then at night, then you got to catch up on everything you missed during the day because you haven't had a chance to look <laughs> at your phone or your emails all day. There's evening events. There's, you know, the school group that came up during the day is now going back home. And so they want to take a picture with you by the bus or the medical <laughs> society that's coming up. They're having a reception to thank all of the Brooklyn delegation uh, for their support on this bill or that bill. So you want to stop by there and make sure that you say thank you. There's like a lot of running around constantly. And it is literally the same way every single day we're in session drinking out of a fire hose. That's the best and most accurate way to describe it. Do you even have time to eat? or I, like- I myself try to eat like a strong breakfast and just like snack through the day and hopefully get through till about <laughs> 6.30 or 7 when I'll didn't have like a, you know, a big dinner. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of running around. And it's hard to like stay on top of all your work that way. My staff is great and they do a lot of the work for me and I'm able to trust them and delegate to them a lot. I still want to know where we are and I want to review legislative language. I need to do my briefings for the day after. I need to know like what's on the committee agenda. What am I preparing for? Yep. Do I have any issues, concerns, questions? I have to put in some prep time as well. That can go anywhere from one to two or three hours depending on Whew. how busy the next day is. So it actually is two full-time days packed into one basically. The most understanding of that that I've ever had has been watching some of your colleagues posting during budgeting. You know, oh, we're in hour 25 in, yeah. in the chambers. Hearing you talk about it and knowing that that's on top of the commute to Albany and back, on top of having it be multiple days in the week, that's just crazy. Yeah, but I love it. <laughs> it's actually, it's really exciting and it's fun because this is how, this is what you signed up for and this is how it gets done. This is how the sausage gets made and I love it. What's the most challenging bill that you've had go to a vote and pass? My personal, my most challenging bill. That's a good. I, you know what? I have not had as many controversial bills as some of my colleagues have. I would say the one that generated the the greatest number of, um, greatest amount of debate would have been the speed camera bill in twenty nineteen. Oh, really? And actually, the, the debate was not on my bill. It was on the subsequent bill, which allowed the city of Buffalo to basically operate its own hmm. speed Buffalo camera program <laughs> uh, similar to what the New York program was. For whatever reason, actually, uh, the, the Republican senators who were asking about the Buffalo bill, uh, well, Buffalo bills, um, <laughs> actually you know, said, you know like, actually, Buffalo, these right? questions are more, I, I should have asked these questions under the last bill about New York City, but it's the same topic, so I still want to get them on the record. Um. So um, that bill generated the most amount of debate. Um, I think for the most part, the bills that I've passed have been largely, we've done a lot of work to- uh, eliminate or reduce, you know, obstacles or opposition. Um, a lot of the bills that I've passed have been related to my committee chairmanship, which you know everyone wants to be, say that they support their public workers. Um, and so we, we by the time we get them to the floor for a vote, we don't have as much opposition to those bills, um, which is great. And it's great to be able to have a, kind of a portfolio of issues that don't gen- engender that type of um, that opposition. So we'll pass the bill and might pass. Unanimously, which a lot of my bills have, it might pass, you know, 43 to 20, you know, if it's strictly down party lines. Oftentimes, by the time you have it on the floor for passage, I would say nine times out of 10, the assembly bill will be the exact same language. You know, it might go through some amendments 
to sync up the houses beforehand, but the final bill that passes nine times out of 10 will be the same bill in each house. And actually what happens, once a bill passes one house, it then gets transmitted to the other house and it gets swapped out for the exact bill on the other house. So S1234 and A5678 might be the same exact bill, one in each chamber. Mm -hmm. If it passes the Senate first, the Senate bill will then get carried over to the assembly bill and then the assembly clerk will read A5678 is being subbed out for S1234. And then that becomes the bill that the assembly will vote on. It's the same bill. It really just becomes who does it first. Once it passes, and the same thing happens in DC also, by the way. Once it passes there, it technically then goes to the governor's office for signature. Under the state constitution, a bill gets transmitted to the governor's office and a governor has 10 days to either sign the bill or veto it. And if the governor does not veto it or sign it, it can then become law automatically. As a matter of practice over the last, I don't know how far back this practice stems, but certainly under the previous governor, for as long as I've been paying attention to state politics, the previous governor would request that the legislature not send the bill until he was ready to receive the bill. So there's no requirement that the bill gets transmitted right from passage to the governor's office. Mm. Like there is this ambiguous gray area where it can just kind of like be in a holding pattern. And then the governor can call for the bill. And at that point, the clock starts. So so essentially the, the previous governor was saying, I don't have time to look at it till I have time to look at it. Or I don't want to look at it until I want to look at it. Right. Yeah. Either or, right? Maybe it's a bill that the governor hasn't had a chance to engage with the legislature on in depth. For either intentional or unintentional purposes, they were not paying attention. And they want more time to kind of see where bill opponents are and opposition is or other stakeholders and see if there might be able to way to like negotiate a compromise after the fact, which I'll talk about in a minute. Or maybe the other governor was really getting big about this. Take the speed camera bill, for example. We passed it in March. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wanted to sign it at a time that he thought it would have the biggest splash. So he picked Mother's Day in May. He hmm. waited until a few days before Mother's Day to call for the bill because huh. he wanted a press hit right. saying that he was signing the speed camera bill on Mother's Day, which is a really, really interesting. Like it's, a, it's an effective and it's a smart way to think about how the executive can kind of insert himself into the legislative process by controlling the ultimate clock. Huh. And the previous governor was really, really good about that. He did that all the time. Uh, the one time, it was actually one of the first bills we passed when we came into the majority, we passed the Reproductive Health Act and we sent the bill to him right away. And he was upset, like, oh, you can't send me the bill. I'm not ready for it. Because he wanted to do this whole thing. He wanted to have pink drapes and do all this and like have a whole big event. And we kind of forced his hand. And like then he had to just sign it. So it wasn't like at his liking. So yeah, that's actually what I was gonna ask about if if the legislature could just say, like, nope, we're sending it. They can. They very well can. Um, I think as a matter of like comedy, comedy, not comedy, we try to like engage in good faith, unless it's like urgent, it needs mm-hmm. to happen right now. It's okay to kind of let the clock play out a little bit. And by the way, maybe the legislature wants to let a little bit more time play out so that they can, you know, help devise a press strategy or this or that or get a bigger hit at it. So it really depends. Oftentimes the governor would look at a bill, have his staff look at a bill, and then try to negotiate some changes. Mm. A process called the chapter amendment process. So what that means is the governor will look at a bill and say, actually, I don't like these three provisions in this bill, I want to change them in these three ways. He could veto the bill and then have us go back to the drawing board 
and then try to maybe pass a bill with those changes. We can negotiate a compromise. Or what's, I think, a more efficient way of getting it done, which is what we do, is he'll say, I'll sign the bill with a memo of understanding that the legislature will, at their next available time, pass another bill that makes these three modifications. Hmm. It's called a chapter amendment. Huh. I don't forget, like, even right now, Governor Hochul is sitting on like 350 bills that have passed both chambers of the legislature that still need her review. So it almost like part of this is drawn out by just the practical effect of the calendar. Like you can't give her a thousand bills and say you have 10 days for all of them. Good luck, right? So, you know, let's say that we're out of session and the governor gets around to looking at one of my bills in October mm-hmm. and wants to make a change. You know, maybe the effective date in my bill was 60 days after enactment, but he says we need a year based on what the agency is telling him. Fine. We'll negotiate that agreement. He will sign my bill. And then when we come back into session in January, we'll pass a new bill called the chapter amendment that we have previously negotiated that will amend the law that I enacted the previous year to change the effective date. Uh, And that happens more often than not on, on many, many bills. How difficult is it to put up a bill that deals specifically with an issue that's important in Bay Ridge and getting someone in Buffalo or one of your other colleagues to kind of care about something? For example, the Sleep Act, which is just coming out, is for cars backfiring and modifications to mufflers. How do you get other groups of people to like care about that issue on a state level? The Sleep Act's a great example. That was a bill that actually had wide support all across the state. I mean, when we introduced the bill, I got messages and phone calls and tweets and, and Facebook messages and like <laughs> letters from people all over the state. I had a news station in Binghamton interview me about it because it was a problem in Binghamton. Wow. Um, like this, is, this one, I think, had universal, and obviously New York being the universe, universal appeal. And in fact, my co-sponsor in the assembly was the chairman of the transportation committee, who is from Syracuse. So the assemblyman from Syracuse picked up this bill and helped me pass it, not knowing about the shore road problem, but knowing about the Syracuse problem and realizing <laughs> that we both had the same problem, which was also the same problem out Long Island and in Buffalo and in Rochester and in the North Country and Hudson Valley everywhere. So oftentimes you'll find that bills will have a greater impact than you might first suspect. Other bills that might have a more localized impact, it really depends on where those impacts are being felt. So for example, if it's a bill that just affects New York City, not to go down a constitutional <laughs> history segue here. Oh, um, please. We like history segue. You know, New York's constitution is really unique in that it has, and there's a, there's a rich history behind this that we won't go into, but it's really fascinating, home rule. Because Albany controls so much of the day-to-day ability of local governments to operate. Albany cannot take actions that affect a singular jurisdiction unless there is a home rule request from the local governing jurisdiction asking for that change. So for example, my speed camera legislation that I passed and signed into law in 2019 only applies to New York City. We could not pass that bill out of the legislature until we received a home rule message from the city council saying, we, the legislative city council, have received S1234. We have read it. We agree with it. And we respectfully request the state legislature to pass this bill. And we approve of this bill. Mm. That must be an area where having partners in city government becomes so important. Huge, huge. Now, there are ways around the home rule message. 
For example, if you write the bill to say, in relation to the operation of a speed camera demonstration program in the city of New York, that'll trigger a home rule message from the city of New York because you say the city of New York. Mm -hmm. If you say in the bill, in relation to the operation of a speed camera demonstration program in any city of 1 million people or more, (laughs) technically, that could be any city in the state that meets that definitional requirement. Practically speaking, there's only one One city city that meets that, that. which is the city of New York, right? right? So there are ways around the home rule request. But again, as part of the consensus building process, there will be plenty of opportunities to engage with stakeholders, both internally in the legislature, externally with the executive, as well as externally with other levels of government, just to make sure that everyone's kind of pulling Mm. the oars in the same direction, even if not at the same pace. I would love to do a bonus episode yeah. at some point on the constitutional history of home I've rule. I've got a bunch of books on my shelf here all about New York's constitutional history. So I would, oh. I would urge you to start with Ordered Liberty, which is a history of the New York State Constitution. Ooh. And then I would move on to New York's Broken Constitution, which highlights seven areas where the state constitution is fundamentally broken and flawed and laying out a case for reform. Those would be the two recommendations that I would make to your loyal listeners. So. <laughs> And and actually, that kind of reminds me of something. One of the bills I saw that you had passed related to declaring that someone was the heir or the legal child Mm. of someone else. And sorry, this is kind of a tangent, but how does something like that happen where there's something that specific? So that's actually a great bill and one that I am personally incredibly proud of. For your listeners, you remember December 20th, 2014, Officer Wenjian Liu was, uh, Detective Wenjian Liu, was shot and killed in his patrol car in, Mm -hmm. I think it was Bed-Stuy, him and Officer Ramos. And he was a constituent. He had been on the job for a couple of years. He had just been married for three months. His family lives in this district. He lived in this district. They were killed by a gentleman who came up from Baltimore because he wanted to kill cops. And on his deathbed, the doctors asked his wife and said like, do you want us to extract his semen, his reproductive um, material? for in vitro fertilization. And she's processing the fact that her husband is bleeding out and dying. And they were just newlywed, three months. And she said yes, because they had talked about having a family, hadn't had any children yet. She said yes. So she was able to save the material. And then about two and a half years later, through the wonder of science, she was able to give birth to a little girl. A little girl is now seven years old. She just turned seven this past summer. But under federal law, to access her father's social security survivor benefits, which she would Mm. naturally be the beneficiary of, if your biological parents die, you are entitled to their survivor benefits. The Social Security Administration says that in cases where the biological parent has predeceased, they look at state law to determine whether or not the child is actually deemed to be the the child child of that individual. Under New York's law, and this is going into detail, but it's it's really interesting. Uh, Under New York law, the only way that a child could be considered the heir to someone born through in vitro is if either both parents are alive and gave consent, or in the case that there was the one parent passed away, there had to have been written consent previously provided in writing with the signature of two witnesses and the child would have to have been born within 36 months of the oh. extraction of the semen. Clearly, in a case like this, mm-hmm. where the officer is on his deathbed in a hospital, 
not knowing what the law is, there is no way to secure that type of pre-approval in writing yeah. in front of two witnesses, right? So they have the baby, trying to apply for survivor benefits, no luck, gets blocked. The family hires an attorney who kind of helps them navigate this, who specializes in this. And we realize that the state law is really the only way that this girl can access her father's death benefits. Mm -hmm. So I proposed legislation to basically say that in any circumstance like this, where one of the parents is deceased, we would create a presumption that as long as they were married at the time, there was some indicia of desire to start a family and that this would be okay, and that the birth is within 36 months, we're going to create a rebuttable presumption that the child is in fact the rightful heir. That presumption could be overcome with evidence. Maybe the family says, no, I have video recordings of the husband saying that he hated his wife and didn't want to like have kids. Like, there's yeah. ways of overcoming, but you, you it's a presumption. To, yeah, you have to work right. out all the other variations right. on this condition. Right. I think that is actually the right policy outcome. I think getting my colleagues to understand that policy change in an environment where we're like lashed to the hydrant, drinking out of a fire <laughs> yeah. hose, was a little bit complicated. So we were not able to pass that bill as is, which would have applied to anyone in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. So instead, I rewrote the law to have it specifically apply, in this case, just to this girl. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, while the policy yeah. change is important, what's urgent is that this girl gets access to those benefits because there was a clock ticking. A judge had delayed ruling on the appeal application for about a year and a half because the lawyer kept saying, no, the legislature is going to change the law. The legislature is going to change the law. Oh, wow. Don't wow. deny the application because once you deny it, that's it on the right. appeal. Please don't deny it. So like, we were running up against a judicial timeline here. We had to change this law, if not for everyone, then for this little girl. We were finally able to do that last year. And I was so happy about that because this is going to make a world of difference mm -hmm. for this family and for this girl and to honor her father's memory. Again, who, by the way, was a constituent mm -hmm. of mine. Wow. wow. That was a long story, but there's a lot no, of- No, that's, that's, that's an amazing. amazing story. I think earlier, was it last year or earlier this year, there was obviously that really upsetting wave of hate crime against both the Asian community, against the Jewish community, and you took some action on that. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about kind of how that came about and how, how yeah. you ended up being the person to lead that. Obviously, as anyone that pays attention to local news knows that Two years ago, the state really made significant changes to the bail laws, right? Because the idea mm -hmm. of wealth-based detention, frankly, is immoral. But as a consequence of that, there has been a lot of anxiety, concern, misinformation, frankly, and just reckoning and struggling to like understand this new reality where you should not, especially people who are nonviolent or who yeah. have not committed violent offenses, hold them in Rikers for nonviolent offenses just based on their ability or inability to pay bail. One area that I thought when we made the first changes that I thought really didn't get its due consideration was the commission of hate crimes. A hate crime has a specific victim and a specific perpetrator, but mm. really the victims are broader than just the one person who's affected, right? If someone goes up and attacks a Jewish person on the street and then says hateful things during that commission of that crime, that's not just targeted at that individual person. That's really targeting the entire community. And what we had heard from many folks, especially, you know, as you point out, Rachel, you know, when we saw this wave of Asian hate crimes and anti-Semitic hate crimes, we heard a real big fear from the broader community that they were afraid to walk to school. They were afraid to walk to the store. They were afraid to walk to their synagogues. They were afraid that because other people in their community were being targeted because of who they were, their religion or their ethnicity, that they too would not be a target. And 
that certainly is not anything that we want people to feel like. I mean, really, we want people to feel safe in their neighborhoods, especially based on their immutable characteristics. So I had proposed legislation to say that in the case where someone commits a hate crime that we know is a hate crime, that a judge in that case should have the discretion to decide to hold someone pre-trial because of the impact that that person's release would then have back on the community as a mm-hmm. whole. And really what this was born out of is there was the case of in Midwood where one woman over the course of you know, three or four days attacked three different groups of Jewish people and was arrested, then released. Went back out and attacked someone else, arrested and then released. That sends a really concerning message to people that they are not safe. And so while by and large, I understand that, you know, the significant need to not hold people in jail based solely on their financial ability to pay bail, I felt like there were some cases where a judge needed to say, look, this person has committed multiple attacks against people targeting them, and this is now affecting the broader public safety and the anxieties of that community, that there should be some limited discretion in those cases. So I proposed that bill with Assemblymember Simka Eichenstein from Borough Park. And we made some changes last year in the state budget around bail, some tweaks and modifications in 2020 that included some of the hate crime changes Mm -hmm. that I had initially authored. So I was happy to see that those changes were being considered. And I think it helps, again, just gives judges one small tool to use so that we're not sending a message to the broader community that you need to live in fear when you walk down the street. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking this time and kind of walking us through what's quite an arduous process with almost 50 bills passed. You make it look easy. (laughs) Thank you so much. No, happily. I mean, as I hope you can tell, I really love this. I love this work. I love being able to do this. I take great pride in what I've been able to do both on my own, but also to your earlier point, Dan, like co-sponsoring other people's (laughs) efforts and helping other people get their bills across the finish line. And I think we've done a great amount of work. And from my perspective, I'm just getting started. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Hopefully, we won't let another three years go by before no, we No, you guys should come to Albany. <laughs> really, you we guys will. should come see what Albany is like. We will. I would, I would yeah. love yeah. to do Radio Free Bay Ridge in Albany. Let's put that on our yeah. calendar. It's got to be on a experience. Tuesday, which is like the busiest days, and you'll get a good flavor for like what's going on. Oh, I would All love right. to just shadow, just report on yeah. how stressful that can really be. And... Until next time, everyone, follow us on Twitter at, at @radiofreebr on Facebook. We are now doing Twitter spaces occasionally, so Andrew, feel free to jump in anytime if you want mm-hmm. to just chat about one of the bills. Keep an eye out on Twitter and follow us there if you haven't already on the web at radiofreebearage.org. But until next time, everyone, stay, stay free, free Bearage. Bearage.